Beef on Dairy. Today is part one of a two-part series looking at that segment of our cattle industry. In nine million dairy cows, I would estimate there's probably, I don't know, maybe up to four to five million beef dairy crosses available. Dr. Ty Lawrence of West Texas A&M University is one of the most recognized experts on this subject. And today we'll look at the factors in the dairy industry that has dairy producers crossbreeding to non-dairy genetics. Then we'll begin to peel back the layers as we look at the good. Uh, there's definitely an improvement in the crossbred animal having a much better dress yield than its dairy purebred uh, origin. And the bad. Unexpected lactation is something that we often see. But again, both in the heifer and the steer. It's part one of our two-part series of Beef on Dairy, the good, the bad, and the ugly on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. everyone. This is the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. We're glad to have you tune in and joining us on our program today. I'll tell you what, this is a show that I've been working on for quite some time. It's on a subject that I really have wanted to get into and learn more for myself. Beef on dairy. It is definitely something we're hearing a lot more about in our industry. And I know for a lot of us that are more uh, non-dairy beef producers, Uh, If we're in states like myself here in Wyoming, we really don't have a big dairy population. I know there's other states that are similar to that. So us as ranchers really don't know what that segment of the industry is so much like. However, for some of you states and some of you folks that are in those states with more of a dairy population, you probably are a little bit more familiar. However, today's program and next week's program, because today is part one of a two-part series as we look at beef on dairy, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it all, we're We're going to, it just ended up being a conversation that I had with our guest that I'll introduce here in just a few moments that really ended up being considerably longer than I had anticipated because I wanted that opportunity to get into some of this and, and get his perspective on that. And so I think you'll enjoy today's program. Don't forget next week's program will be part two of that as we continue to flesh this subject out even more. But without any further ado, I will introduce our guest who is one of the foremost knowledgeable people when it comes to this subject of Beef on Dairy, and it's Dr. Ty Lawrence of West Texas A&M University. He's the Cavanus Davis Distinguished Chair in Meat Science there and also a professor of animal science and the director of the Beef Carcass Research Center. And Dr. Lawrence, I'm glad to have you here with us today. I know we spent a couple months getting this all lined up and we're glad to have you joining us on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Well, let's talk as we jump into this beef on dairy. It's definitely something that has been in a lot of conversations over the many years over the last several years. It's definitely grown. Let's before we jump into the meat of the matter, for lack of better words, let's just back up and talk about, you know, where we were at and what has brought this to the forefront in conversation here in 2024. Sure. So in, uh, in our beef industry, most people think of uh, traditional, I'll say ranch-raised cattle, and that might be uh, an, an Angus animal, might be a Hereford animal, might be a Charlet. Uh, you know, some of the Wagyu breeds are gaining popularity now. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't think of, realize that we have a dairy herd to supply our, our, you know, our milk, our cream, our butter, yogurt, ice cream, et cetera, et cetera. And that those animals also end up in the beef stream 
and, and here in, in uh, the United States, we have approximately 9 million dairy cows. And, uh, you know, every uh, 300 uh, days or so in milk, uh, those, those cows need to be freshened, which means they need, uh, they need to conceive a new calf. And we're going to get uh, a new non-beef animal in a traditional sense out of that animal. And that might be something like a Holstein or it might be a Jersey. Those would be the two dominant dairy breeds mm-hmm. in America. There's, uh, there's some minor breeds around those, but uh, those two uh, take the bulk of the population. Mm-hmm. And so those animals end up in our, in our beef supply. And if you go back to, uh, to 20, I don't know, 2013, 2014, somewhere in there, mm-hmm. the purebred animal dominated. And the, the packers came to the realization that uh, that really wasn't the most desired product. But during the, the drought of that era, they were, they needed that critter. They needed the beef from that animal to meet sheer beef demand that we have both with our domestic consumer and our export partners around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so fast forward to the last few years, Packers said, hey, uh, as the beef supply came back, we don't really want that purebred animal anymore. And one packer absolutely said, we're not buying it. We're, uh, we're taking that off of our buy list and they're sticking strictly to the beef type animal. And a couple other packers did similar, but they weren't quite as vocal as, uh, as one. And, you know, there's a few reasons that are important to this conversation. The purebred Holstein steer mm-hmm. was and still is too tall for many of our facilities. Most beef plants today were, were built in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, mm-hmm. and they were built for a shorter animal. And when you, uh, you have a, a Holstein steer that might be a frame score eight, nine, or 10, and you hang them upside down, uh, many of those cattle were dragging uh, their nose on the ground. Uh, I've seen in, in instances in which the shoulder was dragging on the ground, they're too long to fit on the modern gut table. They were long enough in many cases that they were difficult to split in half uh, with, a, with a splitting saw. And the length of the carcass was a, a literal issue in many places. The height of that animal also led to excess bruising, uh, particularly in some of our trailers that are not designed for really tall cattle. Mm-hmm. And so the cattle would get some loin bruises uh, getting in and, and, and getting out of those trailers. And one of the issues that, that really kind of said, this is a big issue that we don't want to deal with anymore, were the liver abscess. Those cause too many production stops. They cause too many rail outs. And at the end of the day, cattle that had excess liver abscess issues would decrease productivity uh, just by simply lowering the total number of animals that could be processed within a day. Then once you got them out of that, uh, out of the kill floor, you often saw very small triangular ribeyes that were not desirable at the center of a plate. And when you got those animals to fabrication, uh, you had a less than desirable muscle to bone ratio. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things culminated in many packers not wanting to harvest a purebred dairy type animal anymore. Mm-hmm. And so the, the dairy community realized, hey, there's uh, we need to make a change. And so they reached out into uh, 
arguably their beef semen uh, suppliers and said, okay, for this percentage of our herd, and in some cases that might be 80% of the herd, maybe the bottom 80% of, of a dairy's herd, they decided they're going to move to beef semen. And we've seen arguably everything in the, in the book from a, a fantastic animal when you mix a great beef sire with a dairy animal mm-hmm. to something that might actually be worse than the purebred dairy animal <laughs> uh, and, and everything in between yeah. in, in evaluating these cattle over about the last five years. Mm-hmm. And so now we're, we're to a point in the industry where because of our, our, I'll say our second drought in recent years, that we seem to, to see an influx of these. I would argue that there's no more dairy cows now than there were 10 years ago. And thus there's probably no more dairy calves now than there were 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But they, uh, we, we do talk about them a lot. Uh, so in 9 million dairy cows, I would estimate there's probably, I don't know, maybe up to four to 5 million beef dairy crosses available in a manner in which that purebred dairy animal would have been available in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, to, that's just not to say that they're, they're exclusive. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I was in, in Southern California and I, I'll tell you, honestly, I had expected to see uh, hundreds of thousands of dairy crosses and I didn't see one single dairy cross. Oh, really? Uh, feedlot after feedlot after feedlot were full of hundreds of thousands of purebred, uh, Holstein steers. Hmm. So there are there are pockets, at least in uh, in this country, that have not switched to uh, to the dairy cross. So that, that surprised me a little bit. So yeah, yeah. So what I mean, what would you attribute that to? Why wouldn't they be making that change in light of all of the? I mean, all of the reasons that you miss, mentioned, just in in the carcass size and all that kind of things. Why don't you think they're making that change? Uh, so I don't know if it's tradition. And mm-hmm. uh, in, in that there may still be some dairy operators that want to operate in a traditional purebred manner, or if in their market they're still able to market that animal in a in a normal way, and they don't see the value in moving to a crossbred. Hmm. I, I can't answer that. I actually didn't speak to any dairy producers. Uh, I, I was at uh, at some feedlots, mm-hmm. and I saw. Uh, again, traditional black and white steers. Yeah. Not uh, not crossbreds that I had expected to see. Yeah, that's interesting. We're going to take a break here. Uh, Dr. Lawrence, Ty Lawrence, is my guest today, and we are talking beef on dairy. We've still got a lot to talk about. He laid out right now what the issue was and why we are starting to see that. Now we're going to get into, uh, and we're going to break it down as we come as we continue our conversation with Dr. Lawrence. We're going to continue on as he's going to go through different aspects, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly of all of this. And at the end of this two-part series, I think we'll all be a lot more knowledgeable about what this element is that we are seeing and hearing more about in our beef industry. As we head to break, just to remind you that coming up later in the show, the Captain Tim O'Byrne will be in with this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents, and we'll hear from meteorologist Don Day with an outlook on our weather. Yeah, it's also what we've been talking an awful lot about. You'll hear what he thinks is going to happen here for the latter part of January, so stick around. This segment of the Working Ranch Radio Show brought to you by the American Galvey Association. Make your crossbreeding count with Gelvie and Balancer Genetics. To find out more, go to their website at gelvie.org. We'll be back after this. Capitalize on crossbreeding with Gelvie and Balancer bulls. 
Raise replacement females with added fertility, increased longevity, and greater productivity. Gelvi and Balancer influenced females wean more pounds of calf per cow exposed. In the feed yard, Balancer influenced cattle offer increased performance, improved feed efficiency, and had excellent carcass merit. Balancers add the pounds, make the grade, and deliver the value. Make your crossbreeding count with Gelb V and Balancer Genetics. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show as we continue on now where the subject that we've been talking about is beef on dairy. Dr. Ty Lawrence with West Texas A&M University is our guest today. And Dr. Lawrence, you did a good job in the last segment of kind of teeing up really what brought about what we're seeing in our industry today of more beef dairy cross uh, cattle being in the market that we're seeing you've teed that up now let's talk about that element of it and let's break it down to we we got to know that the really one of the reasons that they did that was there were some really good attributes that they could do by just doing a crossbred let's talk about what some of those things are absolutely so i'm going to begin this uh this segment with something that the dairy industry does extremely well in general and that is tracking the identity of an animal. And when that calf is born, it is immediately tagged. And that tag is traceable back to both the sire and the dam of that calf and obviously the dairy on which it was reared. And so these data points fit extremely well into age and source verified programs when they are available and when we have a a consumer that finds value and is willing to pay for that. And that's one of the advantages that in general, the dairy industry has above and beyond what the traditional beef calf industry lacks and, and has failed to do as, as a whole. So we, we have a, a ready-built age and source verified program, regardless if it's a dairy crossbred or dairy purebred, that system is, is well-built and well-implemented by that industry on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Now, moving into the crossbred in and of itself, one of the keys is most of these cattle, with few exceptions, come out with a black hair coat color. And so that's uh, obviously, in most cases, coming from uh, Angus genetics of some sort, uh, whether that uh, was an Angus Holstein cross or whether it was, uh, let's say, a black limousine. Mm-hmm. Uh, from an Angus upgrade many, many generations ago. So uh, we're getting a black hair coat color in either case, and that allows for an Angus stamp. Now, let's let's not confuse that with certified Angus beef, which I'll get to later, mm-hmm. but this, simply the black hair coat color allows that Angus stamp on things that people might not think about every day. So let's say I, I wheel down to the grocery store and I buy a package of premium Angus ground beef. And it is 20 cents per pound more than the non-Angus labeled ground beef next to it. Well, that, you know, that's, that's a premium mm-hmm. that is uh, sought after by our consuming public because they have an affinity for that term Angus. And that, that's okay. That's good. That's, that's great marketing on our part. Mm-hmm. You know, you could go down to the, to the other end of the shopping aisle and you could probably find uh, a hot dog that has <laughs> Angus, an Angus seal on it. And that's okay too. That Angus label will carry a premium over the non-Angus package. And so these cattle with the black hair coat color will fit into programs that are marketed for, you know, with the Angus label. 
And that's good for the industry. That's that's good for our entire consuming public. They find value in that. And we have another mechanism and another avenue to supply that value. I'm going to kind of move into the into the plant now. One of the things that we see less of with the crosses are the size-related bruising issues that we saw with the purebred, particularly the purebred Holstein. So these cattle in general are shorter uh, mm-hmm. and, and the shorter animal is one that has less loin bruises as we bring them uh, you know, from the feedlot uh, to the processing facility. Uh, another thing that we often see on that animal is a native hide. Uh, dairy cattle in general, again, regardless if it's a purebred or a crossbred, are branded much less than a traditional uh, ranch type calf. Mm-hmm. And so we see more, a greater frequency of native hides that do not carry a brand. And that's improved beef industry value, even though that uh, that brand may or may not have direct value to uh, to an individual producer. Uh, along the same lines as the, the shorter animal and less bruises, we have shorter carcasses once those animals are, are stunned and exsanguinated and uh, in the dressing process. And so they're easier in general to process because they don't have the, the full length and height issues that we've seen with the, the, with the purebred animal. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I need to kind of put an asterisk on that. Uh, we've seen some issues in which people did breed their dairy cows to some extremely large black hided cattle and the the resulting steers were every bit as large as the original uh, mm-hmm. Holstein steer so that's not exclusively a, an answer but it's it's a it's a tendency towards improvement uh, we could we could do a little better by taking some more height off of those cattle and that would that would improve processing efficiency uh, for the beef processors one of the one of the big improvements though is in uh, in dressed yield and in muscle conformation. So uh, we, we see that the, the crossbred animal is somewhere maybe halfway or better between the dressed yield of a dairy animal and the dressed yield of a beef animal. And I've seen instances, individual uh, instances, in which the crossbred animals were par with uh, with a beef type animal and dressed yield. Mm-hmm. That's, that's probably not uh, the rule, rather it's, it would be the exception, but uh, there's definitely an improvement in the crossbred animal having a much better dressed yield than its dairy purebred uh, origin. Mm-hmm. Similarly, we're seeing better, better muscle conformation. So the, the ribeyes, they're thicker, they're plumper, they look more like a beef ribeye and less and less angular. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the rate of angular ribeyes in the crossbred population is really, really low. It's, it's not zero but it's uh, extremely improved, much better than it was in a purebred animal. And we're, we're seeing center of the plate items, think ribeye, think uh, New York or KC strip that are, they're, they're not discounted. They're not, they're not specced out. The purveyors and uh, the downstream customers, they don't know that they're not getting a purebred beef product anymore, even though they're, you know, the animal may have been half Holstein or, or even half Jersey. The, these products look fantastic on the plate. Mm-hmm. So those are all wins, if you will, for the system. Yeah. And and the cattle are still grading fantastic. Now, not that dairy cattle didn't already grade very well, 
the, the dairy population historically has been about one third of our prime tonnage. And the big change now is with the dairy cross that has a black hide and grades well and checks all of the appropriate 10 specifications, many of those are now qualifying for certified Angus beef. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big win. Yeah. It's not just a, a high quality prime product. Now it's it's an animal with great muscle conformation and an animal that grades uh, certified Angus beef at a, a pretty good clip. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not not unexpected to see somewhere in the range of 25 to 50% of a pin uh, grade qualify for CAB. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, you know, much, much higher than that. So these cattle are grading quite well and that's a new opportunity for the dairy reared animal that just didn't exist in the purebred form. Yeah. I'm guessing Dr. Lawrence too, feed efficiency is probably a little better too, in terms of getting it turned around quicker rather than I'd heard before, you know, dairy animals are considered extended stay animals in a, in a, in a feedlot. We've shortened that up a little bit by that cross. We have, we have. And and so that's a, that's a double-edged sword yeah. and it, it, it depends on who you are and where you are in, in that section of the industry. Okay. So if you're, um, let's say you're a custom cattle feeder and you're selling hotel space and feed every day, you probably don't care. Yeah. You like it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you want them to be there and you're, you want to rent the room and sell the feed every day. Mm-hmm. If you're the owner of the animal and you're the one paying the feed bill, well, the, you know, the math switches a little bit to the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in general, uh, a purebred Holstein would have probably been on feed a year. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're, you're there for, you're going to have a birthday in that feed yard. And the, the, the crossbred animal, uh, I know of instances where people are taking off for sure a month, getting down to 330 or so days. And I know of other instances where people are taking off two months. Mm-hmm. So they're getting in and out in 300 days. But you're, you're exactly right. The extent of the stay has diminished because of improved growth performance, uh, literally better average daily gain. And they're also more efficient. Uh, they have lower maintenance energy costs than that uh, purebred animal would have had. And they're going to put on muscle, fat, and bone at a better rate and a more efficient uh, every day than the purebred. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a win. Yeah, for sure. We're going to take another break here. My guest today is Dr. Ty Lawrence. He is out of West Texas A&M University, but one of the premier knowledgeable sources when it comes to beef on dairy. We're going to take a break here. We've talked about the good elements or the good part of, of what we're seeing with beef on dairy. Now in our next segment, we'll get into some of the topics and the conversation of the things that are just a bit more sticky to talk about when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. This segment brought to you by Diamond V, immune support postbiotic feed additives because your animal's health deserves a healthier approach. Find out more at diamondv.com. We'll be back after this. When your goal is to help animals reach their full potential, health matters. Diamond V offers a fresh perspective on animal health, a perspective that supports gut health, strengthens immunity, and enhances performance. For those who choose to invest in keeping healthy animals healthy, feeding Diamond V makes a statement about another dimension of profit, where margins are measured by confidence in your future. To get a fresh perspective, visit DiamondV.com, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. 
Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show as we continue with our guest today talking about beef on dairy. My guest is Dr. Ty Lawrence, who is the uh, Cavanus Davis Distinguished Chair in Meat Science at West Texas A&M University there in Canyon, Texas. He's also a professor of animal science and the director of the Beef Carcass Research Center. Dr. Lawrence, uh, so far, a lot of good information, just basically just telling us the facts that are out there in, in when we talk about this subject of beef on dairy, as we talked about about in the first segment really what brought it about in the last segment we were talking about the good attributes that we're seeing that are coming out of this now let's start to talk about the sticky situations just a little bit if we can and i know uh, and i know when you're presenting to folks you're pretty pretty honest with them and and uh, you're you said you're going to be the same way here today on that so let's talk about some of the issues that that are maybe as we talked in the good and the last deal let's talk about the the bad elements that are still a little bit concerning in this when we look at beef on dairy yep sure so the as we transition to what i call the the bad one of the issues that uh, comes to the forefront is the increased rate of intact testicles that we see at slaughter and all of the negatives that are going to come with having intact males in the pen uh, during the during the cattle feeding operation so i have not successfully documented the frequency of intact testicles in the dairy population. And that's that's my fault, uh, but I've not done that yet. Mm-hmm. I can tell you we see a whole lot more of them in any sort of dairy animal, whether it be a purebred or a crossbred. Okay. And I attribute that to the difficulty in getting both testicles in a band uh, when that animal is young. You know, day one, day two, day three, mm-hmm. these, these calves are banded very early in life. And we frequently see uh, what we would call a, a one testicle bull uh, at slaughter. And so the quite certain that the one testicle had descended and was in the sack and that sack was banded and that trapped the other testicle, uh, you know, inside the inside the abdominal cavity of that animal. The problem is that critter doesn't know he's not a bull uh, or not supposed to be a bull mm-hmm. uh, when he's in the pen. And so that leads to a couple of things. Uh, number one, increased rates of bullying. The increased rates of bullying is because you often have a literal bull in the pen and then we see uh, more bruises that are a result of that. Mm-hmm. And we see uh, darker colored ling in those cattle uh, quite frequently and, and some of their pen mates. So in, uh, in that population of cattle, whether it be purebred or, or crossbred, we see just more darker colored lean. In a packer slang term, it's often called muddy lean. Mm-hmm. And and dark cutting is not a not exactly a black and white issue. There's about ten thousand sheets of gray. <laughs> but in the in the dairy reared population, regardless if it's purebred or crossbred, the lean color is just darker. Yeah. And there's probably a muscle fiber type ratio change that's part of that. There's probably a little bit of psychology in that. And if you've ever been around dairy reared cattle, they don't act the same as, as beef cattle. They, you know, they, they lick, they chew, they eat, they bite, they fight. They're mentally different than a ranch reared beef cat. Mm -hmm. And I, I suspect that there's a different level of social stress in a pen of dairy animals than there is in a, in a pen of non-dairy animals, regardless of all of the 
underlying mechanisms, their muscle color is is darker and it just has a, a muddy, darker appearance. And within you see more partial dark cutters and more full dark cutters in that population. Hmm. So getting getting past muscle color issues, one of the things that is a is a true outcome that you might not expect is we add the beef crossbred into this, the cattle actually get fatter, which is good in in many respects, but but now we're going to trim all that off uh, because we don't ship fat per se in uh, subprimals in the modern market. We trim most of those down to a quarter inch of fat or less. And so one of the, the negatives you wouldn't think about is by crossbreeding these animals, we're adding fat in places that we're just going to get a cut it back off, yeah. which is a reality. Mm-hmm. And it, it is part of what it is, but it's technically a, a negative. And then one of the one of the big negatives is uh, is long hell. Uh, we see a, a really low percentage of dairy reared animals that have healthy lungs at at slaughter. Uh, only about twenty percent would come into the to the slaughterhouse with a a nice clean set of healthy lungs, which means eighty percent have had some sort of challenge earlier in life. And most people might think, well, what's what's the big deal? Well, if you're the packer. You may have to rail that animal off to get the lungs cut out mm-hmm. or, or the lung chunks that are still stuck to the rib cage. When they've had severe uh, lung health challenges, in many cases, those lungs don't, don't just pull out of the animal easily. And they're arguably kind of glued to the rib cage with uh, fibrin connective tissue. And so uh, the Packer slang term for that is a peel out. And you see more of those in uh, in a dairy reared animal just because of the lung health challenges that they've seen earlier in life. And so that causes more difficulty for the processor in literally gutting that animal and uh, and cleaning up anything that they need to. And one of the last things that I that I uh, I'll talk about on the on the bad subject here is the unexpected lactation mm-hmm. and. We see that both in in heifers and surprisingly to a lot of people in steers. Uh, so when uh, when you have a dairy animal that is extremely fat, as as we're often uh, making these animals today, unexpected lactation is something that we often see. But again, both in the heifer and the steer, mm-hmm. and your your listeners need to know that milk is considered the same as fecal matter upon the carcass. And so if you, if you cut into the, the cod or the udder area and that animal is, um, is leaking uh, milk onto the carcass, it cannot legally be washed off. It must be cut from the carcass. Hmm. And this has been an issue at, at multiple, uh, multiple packers uh, for the past several years. It's not surprising uh, anymore for me to receive a phone call from a plant manager asking why uh, why the steers that they have purchased and yeah. are slaughtering are leaking milk onto the carcass. Hmm. Uh, so it's an outcome of an extremely fat animal and the fat cells producing estrone and the uh, the estrone causing uh, lactation in the in those animals. So it's something we've seen several times and it's an issue that the that the packer has had to deal with and it wasn't an issue that they dealt with in the purebred dairy animal, or the, or if it was, it was something that that uh, 
happened in so low frequency, nobody really knew it. Mm-hmm. But in the crossbred, it's not uncommon uh, in the least. Hmm. Just last summer, I was at a, at a feed yard and the cattle feeder asked me to come out and look at some cattle. And we walked into a pen and there was a, there was a group of steers. There's actually one steer that was leaking milk. Hmm. You could visually watch him just drip milk away. And uh, that's something you just don't expect to see in a steer uh, or in a in a heifer that's never been bred for that matter yeah for sure that would be a surprise well we're going to take a break here for this week's show we're going to continue on with dr lawrence next week as we flesh out more of this subject we'll get into even further the ugly side of some of this in addition to that i'll ask him some of the questions i have from a rancher's perspective as well so be sure to tune in on next week's edition of the program for part two of our conversation with dr ty lawrence of west texas a&m university we're going to take a break here when we come back austin waltamath with all flesh USA will be in and later on in the program. Of course, the captain will be in as well as meteorologist Don Day. Stick around. We'll be back after this. There are lots of nutrition tubs out there, but none can match the true blue commitment of Vitalix. Our tubs offer you the most concentrated nutrition at the lowest cost per day. That means more profit for your operation and improved performance for your cow herd. In fact, research shows Vitalix tubs increase feed efficiency by 20% while boosting conception rates, herd health, and weaning weights. Learn more at Vitalix.com. Vitalix, the true blue tub. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I thought it'd be good in light of uh, some of our conversation that we've already had today talking beef on dairy to bring in Austin Waltamath, who's an ID infrastructure specialist with Allflex, which is a brand of Merck Animal Health. And Austin, before we jump right into it, appreciate you joining us back here again on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, thanks, Justin. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the, on the show. Well, as you and I were visiting before we went on air last week, you were at Nebraska Cattlemen's and, and the great conference that took place there. And as we were talking about how some of the conversation that was going on there really correlates to something that as we're talking here today, uh, earlier in the show, of course, we had a great conversation with Dr. Ty Lawrence in regards to beef on dairy. And as you and I were talking about this, really, it's we, we as ranchers in the commercial cow-calf industry or purebred beef industry, we think, well, the beef on dairy is a completely different th- thing and some of the things that they're doing. But in a lot of ways, there is some similarities with where we are seeing our cattle industry going now and just the advancement and the, the continuation of improved genetics, the efficiency in that, the time frame that we can turn those genetics and see those genetics happening sooner. And believe it or not, well, we all do, it, it does go back to how do we handle that data and that use using that information managing that information passing that information and it really does start back at the beginning and getting an id in that calf from day one absolutely justin and and i think beef beef producers can glean a lot of information from the dairy and the the beef on dairy space just as ty lawrence speaks about we see a lot of genetic improvement and fast genetic improvement being done by the by the dairy sector and I think a lot of it goes back to their use of identification and the tools that we provide. Um, just the same as when beef on dairy and the ideology uh, went to implementation, uh, the dairy guys wanted to knock the spots off the calf. Well, I would assimilate that to a beef cow calf producer just buying a bull because he wants to get cows bred. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to he wants that bull to do the bare minimum to get him a sellable product. Well. 
I think that's a that's a good business case, mm-hmm. but it's something we get that's a baseline to start to build off of. And I think that's exactly what the beef on dairy producers have done is they knocked the spots off of them and then they uh, they figured out that these cattle will grade and they will be efficient and they can compete with a lot of the uh, traditional black cattle in the feedlot. And I think that this is something that we can, this is an idea that, that beef producers can take uh, utilizing identification and tissue sampling units from Allflex. And we can be able to start that journey into herd management and herd maximization and efficiencies. And, and it's a, uh, it's the slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Um, and data is, data can be a slippery slope, but data will work for you if you give it the opportunity to. But the, the journey starts opening the toolbox with products from Allflex. And as we had talked about, really, it's the idea of, of taking then that information and utilizing it. As we said, with Allflex, you have the matched pair sets and that those TSU samplers where you can get that sample out and get that sent in. There's a variety of companies that do testing on those samples out there that can be used. And, and really, it's being able to manage then that information is the next step in all of this to then taking that into the accounts of your production, efficiency, quality, and, and how fast you can make an improvement in your herd. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody in any sector of the beef beef production phase wants more people to have more cows that have more calves. Uh, we need cows and calves that are more efficient in, in converting feed to beef. Uh, we know there's a quality aspect that needs managed with carcass merit and being able to predict that carcass merit long before the calf is either A, conceived, but be sold to the next phase in the chain. And then the, the rate of improvement, because time is money and time is very valuable, mm-hmm. especially with the, the genetic changes that we're trying to make in the beef industry. So using genomics to improve your cattle faster than the market, all of these are very important and should be important to the beef cow calf producer. That's a uh, rate of improvement, I think, is one of the key things. I mean, there's other things in all of this, but that is something that is significantly different than it was, say, 20 years ago. And as you as you and I were talking, you had shared with me an example that the Nugent speaker had talked a little bit about how 20 years ago, one of the biggest changes that they were looking at in terms of samples that they were taking is to determine the color on the, on some of these cattle. Are they homozygous? I guess black or the homozygous red or the whatever, you know, that was just 20 years ago. And that was a big deal then. And now we've moved past that and we're making improvements in these cattle much, much quicker. Right. Absolutely. And and he also added that, that 20 years ago, we had 158 DNA markers um, in a DNA sample. And today he said one, one snip um, of a DNA sample has over a hundred thousand markers. Mm. And, and we've, we've made so much improvement in genomics and being able to, to predict what is going to happen with a herd and a population that we're just tapping the surface for what's to come. I mean, there's a lot of question marks as to what's to come in the beef industry, but I think we all want to be more efficient. We all want to make more money and make valuable decisions. And uh, the, the tools that Allflex provides uh, start that engine. And I think, Austin, too, as people hear this, you know, we've had several conversations, you and I, and I've had other uh, guests on the show as we've talked about DNA testing. And at some point, people are starting to say, you know, quit beating us over the head. I just, I, I understand, I understand what it can do. And I think in some ways, we've got to tell what it can do. And we've done a good job here on our show. You guys do a good job of saying what the benefits are. At the end of the day, though, you know, we, you have to 
to utilize this information. If you're going to go and you're going to do this, you need to put it into practice, you know, take that data and the next step in all of that was management of it. Utilize that. And and I don't want to place so much importance on DNA that we lose sight of other elements in terms of managing our ranches, our, our cattle herds, because there's still physically things that we need to do from a physical standpoint to be profitable. But this is just, you know, really, this is a tool in the toolbox. Absolutely, Justin. And I think uh, we, we work with several genomics companies. And, and one thing I will say about all the genomics companies in, in the country, you take the data, you take the sample, they give you the data, but also those reps help you in that decision-making process. They can find out what your goals are and start to help you make those decisions. And pretty soon the data doesn't seem so overwhelming and they want to help you help the operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to help you make more money and it really helps them to help you become a decision maker. Yeah. Austin, just one more thing. And, and, and I, we have talked about it on our show before and, and partly the reason I continue to bring it up because I think it is a good starting point for folks, maybe in the, on that plane of determining, do we want to move forward with getting some samples or not? And how do we go about doing that? We've talked about it before. I'm just going to have you comment on it again. A good starting point on that is when you bangs vaccinate these heifers. That's a good time to start. And I know a lot of guys, uh, for myself, our, our outfit, we don't bangs until a little bit later because I'm going to wait to see if I'm going to spay or keep that heifer as a replacement. Some guys bangs and they precondition as early as that. And maybe you've, you're past that point, but at the same time, you're going to be working these heifers through these winter months. And it's a good kicking off point to start with that process of, of getting an EID tag in that ear and moving forward with that process. Absolutely. I think you're, you're dead on interesting that that a lot of people do it at bangs vaccinating time and you're doing that ahead of breeding and gaining all this information back uh, before your bull buying process or your your bull selection process if you're in an ai program um, having all this genetic data in in the back of your mind makes you a better bull buyer Mm -hmm. or a bull selector and if you keep continue to build on the data that you've gathered from your herd soon you will know exactly what animals you will have and what you will have to market when the time comes. And just like you said, you can't manage what you can't measure. Mm-hmm. And so having identification in these in these animals' ears is, is pivotal. And if we can start to streamline some of that data collection and data management with an EID, I think you're headed down the right path. You bet. Well, Austin, I appreciate you joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Before we go, just quick information how people can find out more on the products that are there. As we talked about a few things, one of the things is those matched pair sets. Of course, you can start with a tag at at birth or you can go in with an EID tag at branding as well. There's a lot of guys doing that, especially if you're in a a program type situation. Uh, Clear down to uh, the TSU samplers and, and, and getting that information. So where do folks get more information? Absolutely. Uh, you can check us out on allflexusa.com. Also, as you mentioned, we are a division of Merck. Uh, get in touch with your local Merck animal health rep. And we have ID specialists all across the country uh, that, that manages and focus on a lot of these tools. But uh, we sell all of our products through distribution and uh, we can get you in touch with a valuable partner for your operation. All right. Well, Austin, thanks again. We appreciate you joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. 
Thank you, Justin. You bet. And again, that was Austin Waltemath, an ID infrastructure specialist with Allflex. As we mentioned there, Allflex is a brand of Merck Animal Health. If you want more information, you can go to their website at allflexusa.com. We'll stay with us after the break. Meteorologist Don Day will be in. Yeah, we've all been talking about the weather lately, and we're going to talk about it with him as we coming out of this extreme cold. How long is it going to grip our nation? What's in store for the rest of January? We'll hear that from meteorologist Don Day. And of course, the captain, Tim O'Byrne, will be in with this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. We'll be back on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. Looking for the perfect gift for a gardener or weather enthusiast? Introducing the Tropo, a precision rain gauge that has revolutionized both reliability and convenience. Expertly engineered by meteorologists, the Tropo gauge boasts rugged durability, impeccable accuracy, and precision to the hundredth of an inch. Visit MeasureRain.com to order a Tropo today and use code RAINDAY. That's R-A-I-N-D-A-Y for free shipping and 10% off. Go to Measure and welcome back to the working ranch radio show as we continue on now you know last week i'd mentioned that the latest issue of working ranch magazine should be coming your way and lo and behold what did i find in my mailbox this week but yeah it was the january february issue of working ranch magazine now there are a lot of stories and a lot of great articles in there to look at but one i would encourage you to just check out uh, right away in light of what we're going to hear from the captain tim burn here in just a little bit would be on page 44 on ranch wheel looking at HD Dooley's. After reading this article, I was thinking, okay, I think I know what prompted the topic for this week's edition from the Captain Tim O'Byrne, who is publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine. Let's listen in for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. Justin, I went to look at new trucks the other day just on a whim, and I got to tell you, I was in shock. And I got to thinking... You know, maybe working ranch ought to come up with a pickup and uh, like a work truck, working ranch truck, kind of like the King Ranch thing, but on the working ranch end of it. And I'm thinking, what would I have for standard features in that truck? Well, I'm thinking roll down windows for one, an eight track, a gun rack, uh, the high low beam on the floor, that little clicker that we used to like, a big old antenna. This is for you, Justin. Wyoming letterbuck mud flaps. I had a old f-150 with those big old mud flaps on them it looked really cool a locking gas cap manual locking hubs dual tanks with an actual hidden manual switch like under the you know kind of by the door there and uh those triangle side windows that used to be able to turn in and kind of blow some wind on you when you're driving down the road sliding back window of course and a fuel pump that's not in the gas tank whose brainwave was that Working Ranch truck on sale now for $19,000. And the best part is go to your boneyard and uh, grab, gather up all that scrap steel and we'll give you a credit because we'll take that steel off your hands, melt it down and make a big old Working Ranch pickup. Back to you, Justin. All right. Thanks, Captain. <laughs> I was just chuckling as you were going through all of that, because I think for a lot of us, hey, I know I'm I'm not as old as you are, but just a couple things I was thinking about. You forgot one more thing. You need to have a CB radio in there as well. And uh, you were talking about the dimmer switch that was on the floorboard. 
Well, I know when they moved that up to the steering wheel, I don't know how many old guys got their feet tangled up in the steering wheel trying to get that figured out. But nevertheless, that sounds like a good idea, working ranch pickup. I'm in favor. I've got some scrap metal. We'll get one fabricated, see what it looks like. Anyway, great idea, Captain. Appreciate that. Well, we're going to switch gears a bit here, and we're going to head into our weather. And I'll tell you what, weather has dominated our conversations for a lot of us here in the ag industry over the last week or so. And joining us now is meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. And Don, we're in the thick of it. Boy, Every from really all across the country, there's some aspect of a weather winter weather type storm. Maybe the exclusion of that is uh, Southern California. California, <laughs> but they're probably getting moisture with some of this. But nevertheless, it is a pretty massive storm that we're in, in right now. And, you know, maybe uh, towards the middle of the week, a little bit of a reprieve in that. But nevertheless, it's uh, welcome to winter 2024. Yeah, after what has been a very mild winter for the most part across North America, boy, the tables have really turned and flipped. And when you bring very large deep Arctic air masses into the the mid-latitudes, or basically the, the U.S., uh, that boundary interacts with the warmer, more moist air that's in the southern plains, the Gulf region, and it just creates a very stormy pattern right along that Arctic boundary. We've already seen uh, earlier this past week a, a major storm in the Midwest. The Midwest and Great Lakes are going to be experiencing this weekend a, a very intense storm that will pull in some extremely cold air all across the U.S., and while the worst of the cold is going to be along the east slopes, the Rockies, and then points east and south, even, you know, you mentioned California. Yeah, those areas really aren't going to see much weather, but they're going to be getting colder as well uh, into the desert southwest. But this is a v- going to be a, a two-week period, a very impactful winter weather, severe cold. Um, and these systems sometimes produce more than uh, what is sometimes expected, and they can be quite as stubborn. Arctic air is thick. It's 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 kind of like maple syrup. Once it gets into the country, it moves real slow and has a tendency to be stubborn to move out. So folks are going to need to prepare for an extended period of colder weather. Mm-hmm. Kind of the uh, term slow as molasses in January. <laughs> there you go. Fits, right? <laughs> um, you had talked about when we were off air a little bit that for I know in our area, we're going to see maybe a little bit of a reprieve towards the middle of the week. Uh, that's just from us being on the west side versus the east side of the country. But potentially a reload in this and nothing for sure, but you're kind of watching that. What does that, what are you watching there for the latter part of January that's kind of got your ears perked a little bit? Well, what we're concerned about is, is this big, large Arctic outbreak or what you'll sometimes hear in the media is the polar vortex. Is you see, you have this huge area of Arctic air across North America that a lot of times during an Arctic outbreak or a big cold snap during the winter season, you'll see these Arctic air masses move across the globe. It'll move across North America, then it'll end up going across the North Atlantic. But what may happen is it may make its move eastward, allowing a little bit of a warm up towards the middle of next week in many areas, at least in the central and western United States. But if it gets blocked, it can't get across the North Atlantic. And so what it'll do is it may wobble westward again, only to get us a second time around. Now, that's not a guarantee, but it's basically the same air mass that is wobbling its way eastward slowly, may hit a wall, then may start to rotate back westward again. And if that happens, that's going to blanket most of the nation with another period 
of cold weather and and stormy conditions. I mean, we're going to see freezing temperatures as far south as central Florida. Uh, We could be down into the teens and lower 20s all the way to Houston. Um, And uh, this is going to be a very impactful and a storm system. And the stock growers are going to have some real severe winter weather to deal with, especially where that Gulf of Mexico moisture comes in. And these Midwestern and Great Lakes storms uh, produce a lot of ice and snow and a lot of wind. Yeah. Well, that was what I was going to ask you next is how much moisture was going to be involved in this next next leg of this winter storm. But it sounds like there's going to be some, again, kind of targeted more to the Midwest, huh? Yeah. The nation's heartland certainly is in the bullseye for this. It's also a pattern that is going to enhance the, the snowpack in the West, which has really been suffering. Uh, the snowpack all across uh, all of the major mountain ranges from from Arizona to Washington and Oregon, the Sierra Nevada and the central and northern Rockies. This is a pattern that's really going to bring significant snow to the mountains. So we're kind of playing catch up after a a pretty mild November, December. Uh, Mother Nature has a way of evening things out. And so, you know, when when you're in the month of December and it starts off mild, a lot of times it gives you that false sense of security that that's how the rest of the winter will go. But it looks like it's going to be rough going here for a while. You bet. All right. Well, Don, I appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, that is meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. And boy, I'll tell you, if there's ever a time to be watching what this weather is going to be doing, now is the time. And each and every morning, you can catch meteorologist Don Day's weather forecast video podcast. You can go to his website at dayweather.com. Or you can also find him on YouTube as well. Stick with us. We'll put a wrap on this week's show when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Join us next week. As I said before, it's part two of our series, Beef on Dairy with Dr. Ty Lawrence, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today, we talked about the good and the bad. Next week, we're going to go even a little bit deeper on that, so be sure to join us. By the way, if you missed anything, you can go to workingranchmag.com, and you can download the show or on any podcast provider as well. The Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine, branded number one by America's Ranchers. My email address is justin.workingranch at gmail.com. I'm Justin Mills, and until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long.